You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Warm greeting to you tonight. Good to, good to see you all out here. Trust you're doing well. And looking forward to this next part of our worship. Of course, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? After this, there's tea and coffee and fellowship and you get to bless one another. But right now, we're going to um, you know, open up God's Word and get a bit of a interesting or a peculiar topic for you tonight. Um, I wanted to talk about sin. I know, what are we doing talking about sin in church? That's really silly. No, but it's, I'm actually looking forward to this. The Word of God has a lot to say about it. And uh, I um, uh, came to church this morning. I said to Bron, you know, I'm really looking forward. I've probably never looked so forward to talking about sin before. Partly, I think, because as I've opened up God's Word during the week and, and looked at this particular passage, which we're all going to look at um, shortly, God's Word never disappoints. And um, it's just been so refreshing to see such hope in the midst of such despair. So we're going to look at this. Now, this is in the context of, you may recall, we've been looking at um, the story of Joshua. And uh, Joshua and the Israelites, having had remarkable success of Jericho, have have just been defeated by a very, very small enemy, and it's, it's left them absolutely shattered. They have just been wondering what has happened. Their confidence is at an all-time low. And, and we looked last week at the cause of that, and it was because a person by the name of Achan had, had kept aside some things which were to be devoted to the Lord. He'd kept them aside. He'd gone and buried them in his tent, actually. Now, these things belong to the Lord, and... And really what was going on there was it was showing that his heart, Achan's heart, was not fully devoted to God. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about that, you'll have to, and you didn't hear last week, you'll have to go back and listen last week. I won't be able to recap on all of that. But it's really important. It's always about the heart, you see. And as we approach this topic of sin, I want you to hear that. It's about the heart once more. And it had to be dealt with. And so God had to allow the Israelites to be disciplined for Achan's sin in order that he could deal with this heart problem. And there is a principle here that is true for today, and that is a very, very simple one. But nothing will get you more lost, spiritually speaking, than your failure to deal with sin. It's a thing and it's a real thing and it must be dealt with, absolutely. And we're going to talk about that this evening. In fact, I want to, want to talk to you about what happens when we sin. And in particular, I want to talk to you about four steps, steps that will get you home again, steps that will take you back to the heart of God, for that's where your home is if you are a Christian. So steps to get you home, and in particular four. Um, as I looked at the passage, I, I had the choice of trying to, trying to squeeze four steps into one evening or divide it up a little bit and say, well, let's do two this week and let's do two 
next week, and, and you, you know my default setting. We're going to do two this week, and we're going to do two next week. So, um, so we're only going to get halfway home, if you like, this week, and, and then come back next week, and we'll complete your sanctification, and we'll get you all the way home, all right? But I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Now, getting lost, I recall... Um, Oh, many, 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 many years ago, I was firstly a carbon and a scout. Can you believe it? Get it? Uh, what, 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 cute har in my uniform. I, I thought I was quite the charmer. And uh, on one occasion, we were starting to prepare ourselves for the big hike, not just a day hike. No, 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 the big one. Tents, billies, torches, raincoats, boots. All sorts of things. We were going to go out into the Australian bush. We were going to fight leeches and all manner of evil wild animals. It was going to be so exciting. And uh, this was my first ever. I was probably one of the youngest scouts in our particular scout troop. And I was so hyped. Um, I think it was about a three-day hike. It was, was one of the biggest I've ever been on. We were going to go way, way way out there into the middle of nowhere. We were going to go into places that would make Bear Grylls shake in his underwear. And, uh, and so it was so exciting until about the last day. You see, I kind of got used to this, this whole sequence of events. We're sort of walking along a track and, and we sort of pause and compasses would come out and, you know, I would hold mine up and, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> I've got a compass. Um, but the leaders, those who were really actually taking us from A to B, um, they would seriously look at their compasses, they'd get out the maps and then, then they would all nod at, each, nod at each other with a knowing look. <laughs> and then off we would go again. What was bothering me was that we were doing this with an increased frequency. Like this hadn't happened. The whole, the whole couple of days we'd already been out there on the tracks. You know, you do this maybe every hour. And then knowing confident nods. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Onwards and upwards. But now the compasses were coming out, as I say, with increased frequency. The maps and those confident knowing looks weren't so confident and weren't so knowing. So as probably the youngest there, I was starting to get a sense that all was not well within the leadership here. And they might need somebody else to step up and uh, actually get us out of here. So I made my way to sort of the, the front. In truth, it actually wasn't out of sheer confidence. It was out of abject fear. I wanted to be a little bit closer to the leadership to try and find out what's going wrong here. Like, well, you, you know what you're doing, right? You know where we are. And you know how to get us to where we're supposed to go, right? And so I'm, I'm just kind of nudging up next to them and sort of listening in and peering over at the maps and trying to get a feel for how bad is this? We were lost. We were lost. And I'm not going to tell you if I was ever found or not. You're going to have to work that out for yourself. But just to, just to say that it gave me a little bit of a feeling for what it was to be lost and, and what it meant to actually get out of that situation. And as I say, this feeling of lost is one thing when it's, when it's a little bit of a hike and, and actually overall it was well led. And yes, we did get out of that situation, by the way. It spoils it, doesn't it? But when it comes to your soul, it's an entirely different matter. And so... We do need to tackle this topic of sin. And and as I say, nothing will get you more lost spiritually 
than your failure to deal with sin. So we've got to deal with it. We've got to, we've got to talk about it. And it so happens that uh, in our passage with Joshua, that's exactly, that's exactly what we are up to. Joshua and the elders of Israel have come to that place where they've thrown their hands up and what happened? And then Joshua has fallen flat on the ground. And this is where we pick it up in chapter 10. Now, this week, as I say, we're only going to look at two of the four steps, two steps. But we find them in the first couple of verses here, verses 10, 11, and 12. So let me read to you from Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing? Down on your face. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. All right. Well, the first step that we encounter here, it's a very, very simple one. I, I, I wish I could confound you with great, complex wisdom here, but it's actually really, really basic. The first step, face the sin. Face the sin. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. It's that simple. It's that simple. The very first step in finding your way home when you've got yourself a bit lost is to face your sin. Now, in some ways, it's simple, isn't it? And in some ways, it's a bit more complicated than that. We know that because at some point or another, First John tells us we've all sinned. If we deny it, then actually you are not a believer at all. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all know what it means. But what are we talking about when we talk about sin? In essence, we're, we're actually talking about, and the Hebrew word here is a very simple one. It means to, to miss the way. Literally, you're walking along a particular path. This is the right path, but at some point, you actually get distracted and you divert and you go the wrong way. Literally, that's what the Hebrew means here. You've gone wrong. You have missed the way. You have gone off on the, on the wrong track. And somebody has said, and this is important in this whole discussion on sin, somebody has said, that the key to spiritual growth is picking up that moment when you sin and that moment when you repent. Now, we all know it goes something like this, doesn't it? You know, whoops, I've sinned. Hmm. Well, that was a really bad choice. Yeah. But, you know, something, something tells me that that this is a good place to be and that there's something on offer here that, that God wasn't offering. No, I'm wrong. No, ah, uh, all, uh, all right, God, I repent. And there it is, okay? That agonizing little process 
the distance between the sin and the repentance. And that can be, can be sometimes a few seconds. It can be sometimes a few years. How much pain do you want? And spiritual growth is quite simply reducing the time between the sin and the repentance. Bringing that closer together. Oops, I've done it again. Oh, dang, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, all right, Lord, I repent. To, whoops, oh, sorry, Lord, how did that happen again? I repent. To sin, repent, sin, repent. Bring it together. That's spiritual growth. Identifying when we disappoint God, when we sin, when we go the wrong way, when we have veered off course, and then an immediate correction. With absolute confidence that, that Jesus will get us home again. So we need to be conscious more and more of, of what this means when we, when we sin. Um, quite, quite interestingly, it, it doesn't seem to be a complicated matter here. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's quite simple. They have violated my covenant. In other words, they've been disobedient. Disobedience to God's commands is, is sin. That's what... That's what sin is. And it seems that God is saying to Joshua, don't wallow in this. Don't despair. And sometimes I have to say, by way of application to, to our lives, don't indulge yourself in self-pity. Oh, woe is me. I'm not like the other saints. Oh, I guess I'm destined for repeated failure. Only if you would have mercy on a poor sinner like me, God. Don't, don't indulge yourself. Repent. Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Come on, we can deal with this. Face the sin. So it seems that God doesn't encourage wallowing in despair. He doesn't encourage indulging in self-pity. It's very simple, the first step. Stand up. What are you doing face down there? Let's deal with this. Face the sin. That's the first step here. And what is it that we're facing or what is it that we're addressing? Well, as I said before, it's about missing the mark, isn't it? It's about going astray. Um, when, when we were in Greece, as, as Andrea was saying before, um, she described it really well. We would we'd be in teams. So there's 350 people dividing up into some 60 teams, four or five in a car, and we'd load up the boot with Bibles and we'd head out to various rural areas where we'd never been before. So kind of having a good map or navigational device was really important. I had the phone there and I had Google Maps open and and, uh, and, and while it, it proved to be a very, very good friend for, for this trip. Now, on our way home, of course, everyone would get tired, but as the driver, you'd kind of have to stay a bit focused and, and so forth. And, of course, Google Maps was, was guiding me back again. And, and on the way home, what we would normally do is we had this arrangement with a particular uh, petrol station, and we would pull into this petrol station, get fueled up, and then get back to camp, and we were ready for the next day. So on the way home, there was this particular station that I had to go with, and I pulled up at an intersection just outside of Cassandra, and, and Google Maps wanted me to veer right and take this service road. Now, I could see the main road was straight and true. There was nothing, and I'd been along this a few times before, there was nothing for a few kilometers. So I thought to myself, looking at that service road, and I'd I turned off um, Mr. Google or Mrs. Google's or however Google was feeling on that particular day's voice. I turned it off and I decided to myself, you know what, I'm just going to head straight 
down this, this road and, and I will, it's, it's a better road and I'll just duck in one of the other exits closer to the petrol station. That was my thinking. So not listening to the voice of Google, having switched off that and, and disobeying its clear instructions to take this service road, I veered off down my road and, and there I was, I could see with the little pin marked on the map, I could see I was getting closer and closer and, and as, I, as I approached it, I was looking for the exit, but there was no exit. And so I got a little bit more nervous at this point. How am I going to get over there? How am I going to get onto the service road? Uh-oh, have I made a mistake here? In disobeying Google, have I kind of put myself now in a tricky situation? And, and sure enough, we got right level with the petrol station, no exit. And now the petrol station was in my rearview mirror, still no exit, no exit. And it was sometime down the track that I finally got to do my, to do my right turn. Max reminded me this morning, because he would, he would do pretty much the same trip. On top of that, just to add to my sin, <laughs> on top of that, I'd actually been warned about this, that you've got to take that service road and so forth. So I had disobeyed so many instructions. I'd turned off the voice. I had ignored the map, and I'd ignored some instructions that I possibly wasn't paying attention to anyway previously. So you know what? Sin is kind of like that. We come to an intersection. We have a choice to make. God's word clearly says you need to take not that broad path, but you need to take this narrow path. Jesus said it this way, broad is the path that leads to destruction. And narrow is the path that leads to life. God's commands are very, very clear. He states in all aspects of life that are pertinent to godliness. He, he shows us the way to go. And in those moments where we decide, do you know what? I, I, I see that. But it's a bit of a crummy road. I mean, that's a hard way to go. Look at this beautiful broad path stretching ahead of me. Everybody else, frankly, is doing it. I think on this occasion, I can see another way through here. I'm just going to continue along here, do it my way a little bit, grab my exit when I want, and I will come back to that path of godliness and righteousness, which I now choose to veer from. <laughs> it doesn't always work so well. Well, that is sin. It's missing the way. It's going along the wrong track. Now, just so that you know, I'm not overstating that. There, in the book of James, there's a very interesting little passage. James is writing to a group of Christians way, way back who are facing a very similar day and age to what we are facing today. And in chapter 4, verse 4, he, he starts out by saying, You adulterous people, by that meaning you've let your heart be divided, and you shouldn't have. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? In other words, the spirit of God that is in us is jealous over our heart. 
He will not permit us to be adulterous in our desires. He won't, he won't allow us to divide our heart a little bit for you, God, and a little bit for the world. No, James is saying, don't you understand? Friendship with the world puts you at odds with God. It's, it's that black and white. Seriously, we, we live, don't, don't we, in a day and age that has absolutely... This is the postmodern experiment. Absolutely uh, excelled in blurring the lines. We take the day and we argue that it's night. We take white and we argue it's black. We we love to to revel in the grey. Perhaps no generation has tried to blur lines as much as this generation. And if you think that's an overstatement or a hyperbole, look at the decision we're going to face in a postal vote very, very shortly. We love to blur the lines. We relish it. We slap ourselves on the back and we think we're so clever. Such an evolved society because we no longer know right from wrong. The Bible says there is a right way. Let me see if I can simplify this. There is a right way and there is a wrong way, and the wrong way isn't right. Did I lose anyone? Uh, it's kind of there. It's, there's, there's a right The right's not wrong and the wrong's not right. There it is. There it is. Goodbye, post-modernity. Sin is when we know the right but choose the wrong. That's sin. It's disobedience from God. It's choosing that broad path. It's making friendship with this world. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sin is when we choose another way other than Jesus' way. Another truth other than Jesus' truth. Another life apart from the life that he's offered in Jesus alone. That's sin when we choose those alternate ways, truths and lives um, sin grieves God. Remember last week, I went to pains to tell you, at the end of the day, he is after the heart. He is after your heart. He hates a divided heart. And it's when we sin, when we rebel against God, our heart is divided and God just longs to bring us back to a place of loving fellowship with him. That's God's aim. And his concern is always this. When we are in a place of sin, we are missing out on so much glory. I mean, God made you to reflect his image, the beautiful, magnificent, matchless image of God resident through Christ in you. His great plan, his great scheme is that 
that His very likeness would shine through you. His glory would be your glory. Think about how good God is. I mean, no one is as joyous as God. No one experiences more peace than God. No one is more true than God. No one is more pure than God. Just, you know, we could extol his virtues for, for the entire evening. Think of everything that God is. That's his glory. And Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. The glory that was in the Father becomes resident in the Son. He gives that to us. We have the glory of God shining in us. That's his purpose. That's what we were made for. And when we sin, that glory gets tarnished. It gets lost. And the father weeps because you were, and I were made for more. He longs for us to embody his glory and to shine it forth. And, and when we sin, we just cannot do that. So the first step there, can you see why I just wanted to tackle two steps tonight? Is that you're feeling reassured now? We're not doing the whole four. But the first step is face your sin, face your sin. Now that, that entailed, we had to have a little bit of a discussion about what sin was. I think we got it, okay? Face the sin. Now the second step is this, recognize you need to deal with it. Recognize you need to deal with it. We find this in verse 12. The Lord says to Joshua, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. In short, that's why you're weak. He goes on, he says, they turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. And then, this is scary, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Wow. So, they had to recognize their need to deal with this. How do you deal with it? That's step three and four. Come back next week for total sanctification. This week, though, let's just recognize, let's think about, why do we have to deal with it? Well, apparently, because if we don't deal with it, we will be stuck in a place where we are both weak and we no longer feel or sense his presence. And we'll have to translate that second one into the New Testament. But, but let's just think about this first part. That's why you cannot stand against your enemies. When you have undealt with sin in your life, you are weak. You can no longer face your enemy. Can't do it. Can't do it. You never could do it in your own strength, but now you're weakened because you're no longer availing yourself of God's strength. Um, let me give you an example. One of my favorite verses, and Bron says I've only got a thousand of them, but hey, that's good to have a bit of latitude, isn't it? One of my favorite verses is Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. And it basically says this, Paul um, is, is encouraging the Philippian churches. And he says, as you have always obeyed, keep working out your salvation. For, he says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Now, let me unpack this for a moment. I, this, this amazes me. I was reading an old, old book by Andrew, Money, Andrew Murray many, many years ago. And this is where this little gem, like a golden nugget, all of a sudden, you know, stood out to me. Okay, get this. All right. We need to, and we want to, surely obey God, right? The downside is that so often we feel that, oh, we're in... We're incapable of obeying him. Or sometimes, you know, we, we, we want to act right, but we don't have the will to do it. Well, the promise of this verse is very simple. Here is the good purposes that, that God wants from your life and my life. All right? And God is promising to help us to act, yep, and to will, to desire to act according to his good purposes. It's a little bit like this. Here's, a, here's your life. Um, here's, I know, some of us would love to, to look that skinny. And just, but here's your, your life. Um, and, and, okay, over this side is a reservoir, no, 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 not a reservoir, an ocean of grace that is available to you and to I. And that grace to empower the Christian life is going to flow through our life. And, and at this end, here are all of God's good purposes that, that he wants you to, to be putting into practice. Here's the life that God would like you to live. Here are all of his good purposes that you were, you were created since the beginning of time to put into practice. But how are you going to do it? Philippians 2.13 simply tells us, well... There's so much grace that honestly, so much grace and so much love available to you that if God were to fully open the floodgates, you would just drown. And a very welcome drowning at that. You would drown in his grace and his love. There is more than you need to help you to, to act and to will according to his good purposes. You want, to, you want to accomplish good purposes for God. You, you want to live the victorious Christian life. You want to do that. Well, God will help you to do it, and he will help you to desire it, to act and to will according to his good purposes. There is an abundance of grace to help you to act and to will according to his good purposes. But that verse is in the context of obedience. As you have always obeyed, says Paul, continue to work out your salvation, as you have always obeyed. See, here's what happens. In the Christian life, yes, there's an abundance of grace to help us to act and to will according to God's good purposes. But when we sin, when we are disobedient to God, it's, it's kind of like a kink in the hose. And all of a sudden, it's like a grace blocker. You know, there's something that we know we shouldn't have done, but we've done it. You've been out there, haven't you, watering the garden, and, uh, and all of a sudden you've turned the corner, you just want to go that one extra meter, that one extra meter, and all of a sudden, you know, this, this great waterfall of, of life-giving water all of a sudden is reduced to just a dribble. And you look down the hose, and sure enough, there you can see it, this, this kink in the hose. And but you've got to go deal with it, don't you? Because you can pull it and pull it and pull it, but ain't nothing going to happen except that kink is going to get worse. There's only one way 
that you are going to have that flow once more and it is to get rid of the kink. You have to go back to the problem. And that's the way that Philippians 2.13 works as well. There's an abundance of grace and it's flowing through your life in order to accomplish God's good purposes. But when we disobey him, it's like putting a kink in the hose. And until we deal with that, we are not going to see that grace flow that is going to produce the sort of fruit that, that God desires. And quite simply here, the Bible says that makes you weak. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you unable to, to act and to will according to God's good purposes. You just can't live the Christian life without the grace of God. And the grace of God ain't going to flow past the point of your last disobedience. So that needs to be dealt with. The second step is recognizing our need to deal with it. One of the reasons why is to ensure the, the life-giving flow of the grace of God. And then secondly, God warns the Israelites, I will not be with you anymore. Now, we know New Testament. We're under the new covenant. We know that we have a promise from Jesus Christ that I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know that his, that his spirit doesn't sort of just, just kind of leave us every, every time we sin. No, God's much more patient and, and kind and merciful to us, isn't he? But having said that, nonetheless, there is a sense, and you've probably, probably had that sense, where we no longer feel the intimacy of God's presence like we used to. Does that mean he's not there? No, it doesn't. But does that mean there is a block to the relationship, there is an obstacle there? Yes. Yes, there is. And our ability to commune freely with God and be, be aligned with Him in the way that, well, the way that we are when we've enjoyed our greatest sense of intimacy with God, that gets blocked. We don't sense His presence like we used to. Christians express it differently. Some will say, I just knew there was a point where you know, the best times with God were way behind me. That I had no current testimony of the goodness of God. That somehow I'd grown away. Some people call it the dark night of the soul. There's lots of expressions for it. But at the end of the day, it's essentially the same thing. We've grown distant from God. We don't talk about him with the same affection. We don't seem to enjoy that same level of friendship He's more of an idea and an ideology. We're becoming more religious. He's no longer our heavenly father. Jesus is no longer our Lord, but, but also a friend and a dear one at that. Those intimate terms don't make sense to us anymore. And we, we start to, well, we start to just practice our Christianity because... It's a little bit like the culture we were brought up with. It just seems like the right thing to do. But the real depth of relationship is lost. We no longer sense his presence like we used to. Um, in this morning's audience, there were a lot of hands went up when I asked this question. I don't think it's going to be quite the same way tonight, but... Anyone here ever read the children's, children's books written by Edenard Blyton? 
Oh, wow. Okay, that is impressive, actually. That is impressive. Uh, she was a prolific writer. Um, she, I think, started with something like the uh, wishing chair, wishing chair, or something like that. The uh, the magic faraway tree, the famous five. Who didn't want to be one of those famous five? The secret seven. I mean, it was wow. It it actually got me into into reading books, and uh, um, I used to love them. But but I do remember, and and the imagery is. I've never forgotten it, of the magic faraway tree was something like this. But, but basically, um, uh, and I can't even remember the name of the, the kids, but I imagine it was, she often had kids in the book, but these kids would climb up this magic faraway tree. And, and the idea was this tree was filled with all sorts of, you know, quirky people and so forth, and it was filled with adventure, and it was, a, it was the place you want to be. But at different times, this tree always stood still, but different worlds, like up in the clouds, would, would circle around to the top of the faraway tree. And if you climbed to the top of the faraway tree and burst through the top, you would find yourself in this wonderful, magical world that was, was different in some way, but, but you know, held lots of promise. You know, maybe it was food, or maybe it was fun, or laughter, or something, but something in this world was very, very attractive. So you wanted to climb all the way to the top of the tree, burst through the clouds into this wonderful new world, which promised so much. But here was the deal. It seemed that every story, it was pretty much the same. There was also something a bit off in these different worlds. At first, it seemed so wonderful, and you wanted to go up there, but then, but then there was a danger. Something was about to go wrong, and you wanted to get out of there. And I don't remember all of the details, but I do remember how the, the basic plot flowed. You had to get out of that land quickly and back down the tree before that world moved on. Well, you know, sin is a little bit like that. You know, it's, it's like this wonderful wonderful tree, this enchanted tree that promises so much. And you, you climb it and you think, yay, this is, this is, I wonder what world is at the top. What undiscovered world or pleasure or whatever it might be, what is there that's, that's there for me? What am I missing out on in the Christian life? And, and you enter this, this whole other world that for some reason or another, God seemed to be holding you back from to explore everything that it might hold forth, only to discover, do you know what? It's an empty void. There's danger here. And a very real danger that if I don't get home soon, I could become very, very lost. And so it does become literally a faraway tree, far away from the presence of God. It promises so much, but there is no more empty void than that which is held out by sin. Uh, David Cummings, who has spoken here at Eltham Baptist on a number of occasions, used to, used to say, sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. It will take you further than you ever thought you might go. And it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. The first step is we need to face our sin. It's wrong. It's not right. That's sin. 
face it. And then we need to recognize our need to deal with it. It can't stay this way. If it stays this way, I'm going to become weak and I will no longer enjoy the intimacy of the presence of God like I used to. A couple of years ago, a film came out called Everest. It's the sort of film that you, you want to watch with very warm clothing. <laughs> and it was about a, a New Zealand uh, adventure company who took a group of people up to, to climb the summit. And not all of them were going to do the whole trip, but unfortunately a storm comes through, and it's based on a true story, a storm comes through totally unexpected and and it, it blows, with that storm, it blows all of their plans away. And they, they start to suffer um, mountain sickness, or what, what is also called high-altitude sickness. It's basically where you become oxygen-deprived, and a number of things happen at that point. You firstly can become disoriented and confused. You know, you could be a very seasoned explorer and a very reasonable person, you can be detailed to a fault, obsessive about safety, but when you're oxygen-deprived, you're no longer thinking clearly, and you can do silly things. You can, you can all of a sudden become confused and feel like, I've, I've, I've got to break away from the group. You can, you can isolate yourself and, and all of a sudden think that I'm going the right way or, or I've, got to just, I've just got to curl up here you know, in a ball and I'll get warm again and I'll be okay. You're not thinking clearly anymore. You can do really, really dangerous and, and silly, silly things. But, but not only that, you, in terms of confusion and disorient, disorientation, um, of course, you can, you can become quite, quite lost. It can cause headaches and all sorts of other, other physiological conditions. And, and, and basically, there's one remedy. You need to get back down. You need to reduce the altitude. To a certain point, you can, you can climb and then you can acclimatize to that altitude. But there comes a point where no more. There comes a point where basically you're dying when you pass that point. And, and, and so that last climb to the summit is actually in what they call the death zone. There will be no acclimatization to that. You are actually, you are actually now suffering um, from, from oxygen deprivation, and, and it's just a matter of time. And so you've only got so much time to get to the summit and get back down. There's only one cure, and that is you've got to reduce the altitude. You have to head back down the mountain. Now, of course, if you're of sound mind, if you know what you're doing and you can work all of this out and you're thinking, okay, I've got the, I've got the headaches, I'm short of breath, I'm feeling a bit nauseous and so on, then perhaps with that soundness of mind, you actually can turn back and get yourself down, reduce the altitude and get back down to a level where you can, you can get help and assistance. But if you are too disoriented and too confused, then, then that might be a bit too much for you to work out. And you might become so disoriented that you start to isolate yourself and wander off from the group, the very people that are going to help you, and, and then you're really in trouble. And sin is a little bit, a little bit like high-altitude sickness. It's kind of like being oxygen-deprived. You, you become weak and disoriented and confused. And, and sometimes 
because of, because of the very nature of sin, you're no longer thinking clearly. Sin by its very nature is deception, and you can be so clouded in your, in your understanding of what is right and wrong that, that you can do crazy things. One of the classics, to be quite honest, in the Christian life is, is to listen to that voice and it's the voice of the evil one that is trying to isolate you, that is trying to say, something's wrong here. You need to get away from these other people. Ever hear that voice on a Sunday morning? My boat, ah, you're not really in the position to go to church. Think about the sort of week you've had. You know what? You wouldn't fit in with all of those holy rollers. No, no, no. Today's not the day. Or follow your feelings on this one. You don't really feel like mixing with others, do you? So it's better to stay at home, curl up into the fetal position and just be miserable. For some reason or another, we can be so disoriented and confused that we listen to that isolationist voice. And I've got to tell you, that is just a strategy of the enemy. He loves to, when we're not in a good space, he loves to just isolate us even further, peel us off from the rest of the Christian family, God's family, those who are most likely to edify you, to encourage you, to exhort you on towards love and good deeds. And he loves to isolate you, put you in a place where you're very, very unlikely to hear truth amidst the deception. And sometimes we're so confused and disoriented because of the very sin that we've got caught in that we actually listen to that. That's a classic strategy of the, of the enemy. But we need to turn back. It's the only way. It's the only way. When we're feeling sick with sin, when we are weak and we no longer sense the presence of God, we, we know we're in a place that we should not be, there is only one thing to do. It is turn back. We'll talk a little bit more about repentance next week in steps three to four. But I want to close with this thought, and again, it's from the book of James, because again, he is so aware of the temptation of the world, and he is trying to encourage the church to not get caught up in that and to stay true to God's way. And right at the end of the letter, he finishes it off in a remarkable way in chapter five, verse 19 and 20. He talks about helping one another stay true to the faith. He says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So let me finish with this encouragement to you all. The aim of God's discipline, it's always about the heart. He longs, your heavenly Father, that your heart will not be divided, that you will be truly given wholly over to him. That's what he's after. And he allows sometimes discipline in our life, so we will come to that place where we fall on our face and say, what's wrong? And here are four steps to get you home. Two we've covered tonight. The first one is face the sin. The second one is recognize it has to be dealt with. For without it, you are weak. You are vulnerable. And you will no longer enjoy the intimacy of the presence of God like you were designed to. That should be encouragement to us all, shouldn't it? 
Next week, steps three, steps four, we're going to talk about the incredible hope that is in Christ Jesus. You know what? If we were just talking about the way that sin can distance us from God and we just leave it, like I am leaving it right now, it would always, it would kind of sound a little bit morbid, wouldn't it? It would be just this, oh no, but there is hope. Come back next week. We will complete your sanctification. We'll do steps three and steps four and show you how God's word is going to get you home every single time. It doesn't matter how far you have strayed. It doesn't matter how dark the night seems. You know what? You just aren't good enough to sin that much that God can't redeem you. I know some of you think you're pretty good sinners. You ain't as good as God is at his redemptive work. He's just too good. Is too good. So, yes, there is the potential to sin, but oh yes, God will lead you home every time, every time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for your word and its encouragement to us tonight and this wonderful hope that no matter how bad it gets, you will get us home. You will. You will. In your word, you have given us the guidance that is going to take us there. We thank you for this reminder that sin is a reality. We need to face up to it. We need to deal with it. And next week, we, we look forward once more to hearing how you have intervened on our behalf to do just that. We love you, Lord. We love you. And if any of us is struggling tonight and feeling a little bit hopeless, would you come and minister to them by the power of your spirit now to remind them once more, you are good. You are good. You are very, very good at getting us home. You promised to do it. If we seek you, we will find you and you'll show us the way home. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.